Good morning. One of my favorite uh, times of year is Memorial Day as well as July 4th. I have vivid memories of uh, spending those holidays on military bases growing up. And the deep patriotism uh, just warms my heart. And I want us to remember what Memorial Day is. It's a memory of the women and men who have sacrificed life and limb that we could gather here together freely to worship. It's much more than brats and beer. It's a celebration of what has been bought with an incredible, incredible price. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we think of the women and men that have given so much, that have paid the ultimate temporal sacrifice, that have died on the battlefield, dying that we might have freedom. And Father, may we not rush through Memorial Day, may we remember even at three o'clock the day or the minute set aside by Congress a minute of silence to remember what has been done for us. And Father, we thank you for the greatest memorial sacrifice, your son, who went to the cross and paid the penalty of sin, which is death, and his resurrection again, that through faith in your son alone, we might be given eternal life. And Father, we thank you that we can gather with such freedom and such joy and such worship. And we can continue our study through your inspired, inerrant word today in Luke 21, as that happens to be where we are in the text. And Father, we ask that you would take this text and apply it to us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke 21, 1 to 4. And as you turn there, let me remind you of my unusual summer schedule. Uh, I greet until about a quarter of, and then I go over and I preach at Traditions. Then I walk here and preach. And as soon as I'm done, I walk out the door and I go to one of the other campuses. So if it seems like I'm not around in the summer on Sunday morning, uh, it's just the way the the schedule flows, and uh, so if you <laughs> come early, I would love to greet you. If you come any other time of week, I would love to greet you, but I'm really a bad attender on Sunday. I won't even stay for the last song, uh, because if I do, they will sing an extra song at whatever campus I go to while they wait for me, and you can't imagine how embarrassing it is when you walk on stage and they applaud. Yeah, that's what happens. Let's get the show on the world, boy. That's what they're saying. The year was 1960. Jill had come to Christ after marriage, and she had married really a worthless man. It was incredibly in a time period in which people winked at abuse, spousal abuse. And her husband absolutely deserved to be in jail, should be in jail 
But people winked at the abuse that he heaped on his wife. Together they had six children, five boys, one girl. All were under the age of eight. This worthless man of a husband at least provided $15 a week for groceries. That was about his only contribution to the family life. Jill was a stay-at-home mother, and to her name, she had 75 cents. That was the sum total of her savings the day that her worthless husband, who deserved jail, walked out never to return. Back in the 1960s, if there was welfare, she knew nothing about it. So she gathered up all of her kids and her 51-old Chevy, and they went from factory to restaurant to place of employment, none of them wanting to hire this single mom. She had about given up when she remembered the big wheel, a greasy spoon out on the edge of town. It was owned by a woman everyone affectionately called Grandma. So she went out there and she applied the entire time trying to talk them into hiring her. Grandma's looking out the window at six kids crammed into the old Chevy and thinking to herself, this woman needs help. So she hired her for 65 cents an hour. Starting that night, the graveyard shift, 11 at night to 7 in the morning. Jill was elated. She gathered all her kids together and they spent time thanking God for his many provisions and even promised God they would give him the first fruits of her income. Later that day, she found a neighborhood girl that she knew well, a teen, and promised her a dollar a night if she would sleep on the couch watching her kids while she worked. Jill worked hard. Every morning, she would have to put air in her tires to get home. Every evening, she'd have to put air in her tires to get to work. The car was a rust bucket and the tires were threadbare. She had been working a number of months when one day she came out at seven in the morning. There seemed to be a shadow in the back of her car. Was it playing tricks on her? She opened it up and there were four brand new tires. There was no note. They were anonymously given. Someone had graciously given out of the thoughtfulness of their heart. She went to a local station and she made a trade with the station owner. If he would mount the four tires, she would clean his office. She noted that it took her a lot longer to clean his office than it took him to mount the four tires. But she got home and she thanked the Lord. The kids thanked the Lord as they did every day for his provisions. The months went by and it was getting towards winter. She wanted to buy her kids a Christmas present. But frankly, there was no money for that. In fact, she was worried about what they were wearing. They were wearing patches on top of patches. The clothes were just threadbare. It was Christmas Eve. She worked her normal shift. All the regulars were there. It was with a heavy heart that she walked out to her car at 7 in the morning. She had nothing to give her kids. Really, they had nothing really to eat. But she vowed that she would spend the day playing with them and give them joy. And there was something in the car. Were the shadows playing tricks in her eyes? No. 
She opened it up and there was box upon box. The top box she opened and it was a number of pairs of jeans, size one to size 10. The next box had a number of shirts. The next one, shoes and socks. There were bags of groceries and nuts and candies. And there was a ham and all the fixing. And then, and then she saw it. It brought tears to her eyes. There were five little trucks and one little baby. A little doll for the girl. And there was no note. It was all anonymously given. Don't tell Jill there are no angels at the big wheel truck stop. She knows better. And I love the account. I love the account because it's of a woman who, though has very little, is thankful for God's provisions. I love the account because those who have more gave anonymously, not for show, not for recognition. They gave to meet a need. I love the account because it reminds me of today's account in Luke 21. This is where we are in the gospel. We're in Luke 21. I want to read verses 1 to 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. I want us to picture the scene. The Temple Mount then and now is 37 acres. It's an elevated area in Jerusalem, so you can see it anywhere around the city, which today is about 800,000 people. You can still see the Temple Mount anywhere you are around the city. And if you remember the Temple Mount, 35 of the 37 acres is open to anyone. It's not just the largest part of the temple, which is the court of Gentiles, which is the court for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's all of the surrounded area. It is open to the world. This is the world sanctuary where people can come and worship God, to learn about God, to sing their praises to God, to interact with a liturgy about God. This is the world sanctuary. Edersheim tells us, I haven't been able to verify this, but Edersheim tells us that in the first century, in the court of Gentiles, the stones were of multi-colors as a visible signal or symbol that this was the sanctuary for people of every tribe and tongue, people and nation. That could be true. But you remember at this time, the two high priests were supposed to have one. We've noted several times we have two. Annas, the original high priest, is sacked by Rome replaced by his son-in-law Caiaphas, these two are in cahoots with one another. They have turned the Temple Mount into a money-making machine. In the court of Gentiles and in the area spilling out, they are selling animals to be used in sacrifices. They are exchanging money. They are lining their pockets. They are turning God's house into a den of thieves. And so it is that area that Jesus walks through. He walks through the large 37-acre area. He walks through the court of Gentiles into the court of women. The Mishnah in a tractate entitled Midrath, chapters 2 and 5, tell us that the court of women 
is 200 feet by 200 feet. It's not that large. Now, when we hear the court of women, we think, oh, this is where the women gather. It is, but it's more than that. It's where Jews gather of either gender. It's where individuals come and they hear the word of God taught, where liturgy is given, where songs are lifted up to the Lord. Both genders are there. And so you have the court of Gentiles, you have the court of women, and then you have 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles, and then you have the court of men, which is also the court of Israelites, and then you have the Holy of Holies. That's what the Temple Mount looks like. And so Jesus is in there, and he's watching what is going on. And as I said, at the end of the court of women, just before the court of men, also called the court of Israelites, you have 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. The Talmud tells us that they look like a trumpet. They're about two to three feet tall. They're very narrow at the top, and they're long. And then at the bottom, they widen out, and you put your money in it. This was before ushing was a thing. There weren't ushes. There were just these 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles, and they're individually labeled. The first two are labeled old and new shekel dues. These are the annual gifts that you would give every year to the Lord because you are a Jew and part of the chosen people of God. The next two are labeled bird offerings. These are the offerings given by the poorest of the poor. In Luke chapter 2, when we have Jesus, having been born, his parents give an offering for two turtle doves, a sacrifice thanking God for their son. That's where they would have put the money. The fifth one is labeled sacrifices for wood. We might call this the, the money for the heating bill. This is the utilities. This is the wood used for the sacrifices for the altars or in case of inclement weather, you might have fires in the court of the Gentiles or maybe even out in the 37-acre area to warm people. The one after that is the gifts for frankincense, free will offerings for frankincense because remember, incense is given as a savory sweet sacrifice for the Lord and it is lifted up to God as something pleasing to him. The next one says that it is for the mercy seat, gold for the mercy seat. Now that doesn't make much sense. The mercy seat covers the Ark of the Covenant. There's only one. And once you buy the gold, you don't have to replace it. So why would you have to give more for the mercy seat? It's actually to pay for the inner workings of the temple, the cleaning and the houseworking for the Holy of Holies in that area. And then the last six are all labeled free will offerings. And these are what you would give every week when you would come to the temple to hear the word of God. This is what you would give out of a heart of gratitude. And according to the text, Jesus is in the court of women. It's only 200 feet by 200 feet. It's not very large. And he's observing what is going on. In fact, in Mark's gospel, in the 12th chapter, the 41st verse, he adds the word pas, which means how. It doesn't show up in most translations. It does in the New American Standard and the New King James. They got it right. The rest just kind of ignore the word pas. But it's not that Jesus is just watching. He's watching how people are putting in their offering. And you say, oh, come on, Jesus, how gauche. Don't you know, Jesus, that giving is between us and God? Oh yeah, he is God. 
So he's watching then and now, not only what we give, but how we give it. Apparently, Jesus is not just interested in the amount we give or even the sacrifice we give. He's interested in the manner in which we give it. He wants to know, are we giving in a way that brings attention to what we have given? Are we giving so that others see what we give and we're given a little pat on the back? Now, I want to make an observation. I'm not being critical of it. In fact, I think it's, it's rather right for nonprofits other than churches to do this. But think to yourself of how banquets often go. Banquets go like this. You're trying to raise money from some heavy hitters, the corporations. And so you say, um, if you give a certain amount, we're going to put you in the, the platinum ring. A little less, you might make the gold or the silver or the bronze or the, you don't have much money, but we need to recognize you ring. We might put your name in the brochure. We might even have the MC mention you. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a form of advertisement. And if you're in a company, you think to yourself, okay, we have a certain amount of resources and a certain amount for, for uh, giving to nonprofits. And we want to give about the same as other organizations in our line of work, or maybe one step higher. But we don't want to be two steps below because then we look cheap. And, and that's the way nonprofits raise money. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But when that mentality spills into the church... There's a significant problem because we give out of gratitude for who God is, a recognition that he is worthy of worship. And we don't give in order that someone knows what we give or gives us recognition or, or gives us kudos. We give based on a heart. That's why Mark 12, 41 tells us that Jesus watched how, pos, how they gave. It mattered whether someone came up and serendipitously slipped in money or others came up. And in fact, don't we read in the Gospels that there were times in which trumpets were actually played, and we know this historically to be true, when heavy hitters were coming in, they were giving in these trumpet-shaped receptacles made out of brass where your shekels made a lot of noise and they had trumpets blaring and everyone could see just how much you gave. And it says Jesus is watching how they give. He's interested in the heart of the matter. Apparently, the widow gave magnanimously. She gave in such a way that Jesus was moved. It wasn't the amount. It might have been the sacrifice. It certainly was the heart. The year was 2001. It was one year before I moved here. I was pastoring a church in Pennsylvania, and I went to Ethiopia, quite north in Ethiopia. In fact, I'm going to tell more of this in about four or five weeks. But I was there to train some pastors, and this ought to take your breath away. Every pastor I was there to train had a mother, father, spouse, or child martyred for the faith. Every one of them. I was in a village of 7,000, 65% were the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, 35% Muslim, both of which hated Christianity, and there were 100 Christians in the church. The night before, it was 2 a.m., we had buried a Christ follower who had died 
deep in the ground in an unmarked grave because the villagers had threatened if they find the grave, they're going to disinter the body and drag it through the streets because it's a Christ follower. And the Sunday in which I preached, it was a corrugated steel building, and they stoned the building through my sermon. Literally, they stoned the building. Nobody was alarmed but me. You want a short sermon? Stone the building. Man, I was ready to go out the door. And I remember the offering. If you've ever been in a third world country and the offering comes around, that is a serious dilemma. You don't know what to do. You know that you can outgive the entire church just by yourself and do nothing sacrificial whatsoever, but you don't want to embarrass the church. You want to help the church, but you don't want to embarrass the church. You're not sure what to do. I, I got it wrong that day. I actually did give more than the whole church combined. And, and if that sounds impressive, you can't imagine how small amount I gave. And when the offering point went by, this is what I saw. People putting a little bit of teffin, a little bit of sorghum, and a little bit of wheat in. I was the only one with a coin in the church. And they gave sacrificially. And I've got to believe that God was greatly pleased by the gifts that were given by these individuals. Hearts much like this widow's might. She may not have impacted the bottom line, but she impacted God's heart. We often call it the widow's might, M-I-T-E. It's really an Americanized word. Uh, the Greek is lepta duo. She gave two leptins. A leptin means a small thing, a shaving. It's the smallest coin ever minted in Palestine. It was made of copper. In those days, copper, unlike today, was not very valuable. A leptin is equal to one four hundredth of a shekel. A shekel is what an unskilled laborer can earn in 10 hours. And so she gave two leptins. A leptin would be what you could earn in one and a half minutes of work as an unskilled laborer. She gave two of them, three minutes of work for an unskilled laborer. That's what she gave. I don't think she either added to or broke the budget of the temple. But how does Jesus respond? Let's read three and four again. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I don't think Jesus is saying that she gave the biggest check. I think what Jesus is saying is she gave from the biggest heart. She gave the biggest sacrificially, and her heart was one not of show but of admiration for God. It was one of thanksgiving. It was one of worship. She gave out of a heart of thanksgiving for who God is. With our remaining time, let me just make a few observations first. The text really does not expect us to give all that we have. She did, but that's not what the text requires. It's not what scripture requires. In fact, I think the text would have a little bit of an issue with how I even stated it. I said, the text does not expect us to give all that we have or own, but the Bible doesn't call us owners, does it? It calls us stewards. 
Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. We are stewards of what God has given us. We are entrusted with what God owns to utilize it in a fashion that is pleasing to the Lord. But there's nothing in Scripture that says we need to give all of it back to God. In fact, I don't think there's anything in this text to say that hers was the only gift that God was pleased with that day. It doesn't say that God was displeased with the others. It just says he was elated with her gift, elated with her heart, elated with her sacrifice, elated with her worship. Second, related, giving is totally a heart issue. You know, think about the tax man for a moment. When the tax man comes, Mr. or Mrs. Tax Man doesn't care if I write the check with hatred, begrudgingly, angrily. Just give me the money, honey. Doesn't care how I do it. There's a song called The Tax Man by the Beatles. Forgive me, I'm going to read it. <laughs> Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Should 5% appear too small, be thankful I don't take it all. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. Don't ask me what I want it for. If you don't want to pay some more, because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Now, my advice for those who die, declare the pennies on your eyes. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. And you're working for no one but me. All right, that's a bit sarcastic. But the point is this. Most of what I pay, nobody cares how I pay it. I don't have a single person I owe money to that cares if I write with anger or begrudgingly. They care that the check is paid in full and on time. That's what they care about. God cares about my heart. God cares on whether my heart is one filled with satisfaction in him and thanksgiving to him and worship for him or is it obligation and grudgery? Is it because somebody's putting pressure on me? God cares about my heart. In this regard, I think of 1 Corinthians 13. You think of this chapter as a love chapter. You think of it as about dating and marriage. It applies to that. But the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is just about life. And let me read verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, God is telling me that I could give huge amounts. I could even give sacrificial amounts. But if my heart is not one of worship, God is not pleased. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is first and foremost a heart issue. The third thing I noticed from the text is that God wants it to be a sacrificial issue. This seems to be rather clear, but let me read verses 3 and 4 again. 
And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. I want you to go back to 1000 BC. It's the time of David. David is king. He is at Arana, the Jebusite's threshing floor. So David is not in his palace. He's really not in land that he owns, and he wants to offer God a sacrifice. So he says to this Jebusite, I'm going to buy your threshing floor. I'm going to buy the wood and the oxen for the sacrifice. I'm going to pay it all. And this Jebusite is kind of smart. He says to himself, you know what? You can never outgive a king, so I'm going to give him the wood. I'll give him the oxen. I'll give him the threshing floor. And I'll bet you someday he's going to give me something worth even more in return because you want to get on the good side of the king, right? So he offers all of it for free. And this is what David said, 2 Samuel 24, 24. But the king said to Aronah, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. In other words, David believed that giving to the Lord was also sacrificial. Apparently the widow did as well. Fourth, God views giving a little bit different than man does. Sometimes we look at the biggest gifts and we say, man, thanks for, for that family or that person. We could never go on in business without them. And we celebrate the biggest gifts. You've heard on the radio, and again, I'm not criticizing this. This is the right way for them to raise money. But you've heard on the radio during some kind of raising of funds, we're going to have a match for the next hour. We have a donor who's going to match you dollar for dollar. For every dollar you give, it'll actually be like giving two. We've probably never heard this. We have a widow. She is going to match you leptin for lepton up to uh, two leptins. We're never going to hear that because we don't celebrate those kind of gifts. But Jesus does. He celebrates the gift of the widow. Finally, I want us to notice an omission in the text. It's probably found in your margin. It's probably in the, the footnotes or you have a study Bible. It'll probably fill it in. And it probably says something like this. A week after the widow gave the two leptins, she won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. <laughs> and she gets 10,000 shekels a week for the rest of her life because God blessed her for what she gave. All right, now I'm being cynical. I get it. It doesn't say that. There are not many, many verses, multiplicity of verses that tell us that God blesses us when we give. You can go to Mark 10, 30 or Matthew 19, 20. You can go to lots of verses. In fact, Scripture actually says God blesses us a hundredfold. But that does not mean that it's always just now or it's always all that visible. Maybe, maybe God turns 30,000-mile tires into 40,000-mile tread. Or maybe God restores a relationship. Or maybe God allows a promotion or an advancement. Or maybe God gives us extra blessings in heaven. We don't know. We have to have eyes of faith and believe 
that God will bless us, though that's primarily not why we give. We give as an act of worship. The text doesn't tell us how God blessed the widow. We'll, we'll find out in eternity. But we know that there is great might, M-I-G-H-T, and the widow's might, M-I-T-E, as she gave two leptins from a heart of gratitude, a heart of worship. That's the way we need to give to the Lord, a heart of gratitude and a heart of worship. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the widow and what she gave, what she provided, the account of her life and how she is a great model for us. And may we have hearts they give sacrificially, they give graciously, they give out of acts of worship. And Father, may you be pleased. May we never give in a showy or self-centered or self-aggrandizing way. May we give for your glory. And Father, we thank you again at this time of memorial. We thank you for families that have sacrificed so much women and men who have given their lives, blood that has been shed, freedom that has been bought at an incredible price. And we ask that you would be with our first responders and our military and those who make decisions, allow them to be wise and godly and right. And Father, we thank you even more for the ultimate sacrifice of your son who bought salvation for all who by faith receive him as Savior. And Father, may our appreciation be evidenced in our worship. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.